Welcome to Keep Calm and Cook On. I am your host, Julia Tertian. Thanks to OXO, one of the most trustworthy brands I know, for making this episode possible. For more about OXO and all of the everyday objects they make, head to OXO.com. That's O-X-O dot This episode is brought to you by my upcoming cookbook, Simply Julia. Simply Julia contains 110 easy recipes for healthy comfort food, and it explores all the various ways I define healthy and comfort. It's my most personal book yet, and also the most practical. It will be out on March 2nd, but it's available for pre-order now everywhere books are sold. If you'd like a signed copy, head to the link in the show notes or head to my website, juliatertian.com, for all of the information to order from my local bookstore, Oblong Books. If you enjoy the conversations I have on this podcast, I am sure you are going to love this book. It's got a similar intimacy, and I just can't wait for you to cook from it. Okay, on to today's episode. My guest today is Aubrey Gordon. You might also know Aubrey as your fat friend. For years, Aubrey wrote anonymously as your fat friend about the social realities of life as a very fat person. Her work has been translated into 19 languages and covered around the world. She's written for many notable outlets, including a recent op-ed in the New York Times, which was titled Leave Fat Kids Alone. And she's a columnist with Self Magazine, where she writes about health, weight stigma, and fatness. She is also the author of the book, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat, which came out in November. I have been recommending this book right and left. It's amazing. I found it to be a wonderful companion to Dr. Lindo Bacon's book, Radical Belonging, which you might remember from a few episodes ago when I got to speak with Dr. Bacon. I'm just going to read you a small part of Aubrey's publisher's description of the book. Anti-fatness is everywhere. In what we don't talk about when we talk about fat, Aubrey Gordon unearths the cultural attitudes and social systems that have led to people being denied basic needs because they're fat, and calls for social justice movements to be inclusive of plus-size people's experiences. Advancing fat justice and changing prejudicial structures and attitudes will require work from all people. What we don't talk about when we talk about fat is a crucial tool to create a tectonic shift in the way we see, talk about, and treat our bodies, fat and thin alike. Aubrey is also one half of my absolute favorite podcast, which is called Maintenance Phase, which she makes and hosts with Michael Hobbs. Every other Tuesday, they debunk the junk science behind health and wellness fads and decode their cultural meaning. They've covered things like Snackwell Cookies and The Biggest Loser television show. They do an extraordinary amount of research for each episode, and they're also really funny, and it's just the best mix of information and humor. Aubrey and I talked about all of this, her book, the podcast, and so much more. We also discuss her decade of experience doing community organizing for the queer community. One quick note, as you've heard in this introduction, and as you'll hear in the conversation, both Aubrey and I use the word fat without any disclaimers. That's because the word fat doesn't require any disclaimers. I've linked to Aubrey's really wonderful post called Just Say Fat in the show notes, which does a really fantastic job of explaining why the word fat is not a word to avoid. And just one more quick note. This podcast always ends with me asking my guest what was their favorite thing to eat when they were growing up. I asked Aubrey this question and she answered, but her answer also led us to another 10 minutes or so of conversation that was truly enlightening and really important. And it's all about the intersection of cooking and fatness. It really opened my eyes and I just wanted to say, even though it sounds like the podcast is ending when I ask her that final question, it does continue. So be sure to listen. Okay, on to today's conversation. I'm Aubrey Gordon. I am an author. I am a columnist. And uh, I am now a podcaster. You are. And I have discovered that in introducing myself to people, saying those three things make me sound like the world's most self-aggrandizing liar. (laughs) Where people are just like, no. Are you also working on a screenplay? (laughs) They just all sound like very sweet vanity projects. (laughs) And then I feel like I have to do some explaining to be like, no, it's like somebody else published my book. It's good. It's good. <laughs> People are doing it. So yeah, that's me. Um, have you gotten used to calling yourself an author? That's like a new thing for you. 
I mean, it also feels self-aggrandizing to me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, technically true is yeah. what I remind myself of. Like, author, a person who wrote a book, uh-huh. definitely wrote a book, therefore, get used to it, yeah. you know? It feels a little bit similar to me. I remember being in my 20s and, like, starting to refer to myself as a woman instead of a girl mm. and feeling totally skeeved out by that at first. <laughs> like, totally, like, that's not, that's somebody else. But I'm like a Muppet more than anything else. <laughs> like, what's happening here? Um yeah, but it feels a little bit like that, where it's just yeah. like, well, it's just going to be uncomfortable and weird for a while, and then you'll get used to it, and it'll be fine. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. I'm curious about when you did introduce yourself, you know, used your name, which is something you've only kind of recently started doing in your work. Oh, yeah. The way that people might actually know me uh, <laughs> is uh, as your fat friend. So that's like the more common name mm-hmm. based on five years of name recognition that I'm now tossing out the window <laughs> Is there like a difference between those two people in the way maybe like a Beyonce and a Sasha Fierce? Like, is your fat friend like your alter ego or was it just like you're like, I am not going to share myself personally? Oh, my God. I love the idea that I have like a Chris Gaines (laughs) to my Garth Brooks. I really am into this. I have not thought about your fat friend as being like a separate character, but I'm extremely into it. (laughs) Uh, And now I feel like I need to write. Like something you have to write about, that like, screenplay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Just complete the like whole the whole hat trick. No, I mean I think it was just like this is the name I'm going to write under. I did it sort of on the fly initially. I was just like, sure, uh, your fat friend, sure, why not? And uh, it stuck for a much longer time than I anticipated. So here we are. Yeah, I, it just felt like I would say the work that I've done as your fat friend and the writing has mostly been about sort of like holding up a mirror to folks Mm -hmm. um, to show them how they're treating fat people Mm -hmm. and what the impacts of that behavior are. So Mm -hmm. many of the early essays that I wrote didn't actually include much about my own responses to those situations. Mm -hmm. They were just like, I was doing this and then a stranger decided to do this. Yeah. 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 Shrug emoji. Yeah. What do you think? Right. So it is sort of like, uh, I think a lot of the Your Fat Friend work is like a redacted version of myself. I mean, it's the same as like anybody who's like puts anything out into the world, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's definitely part of you. Yeah. But it's not necessarily the sum of you. Yeah. And yeah. how how has it been going identifying yourself? Like, has that shifted at all how you feel about what you share, how you share it, or how has that change gone for you? I think the biggest change is that people outside of my like very close friends and family, like a wider circle of like people who know me as the face that you are seeing now mm-hmm. <laughs> know that I am also this person, mm-hmm. right? Also sort of your fat friend. So that feels like the biggest shift to me. Other than that, like I was definitely like very concerned about safety and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I write about being a fat person and I don't write about weight loss, mm-hmm. Um which that combination really upsets some people. Yeah. So I was like worried about safety for sure, but also it's happening in the midst of a pandemic. So we're all in lockdown anyway. So I'm mm-hmm. definitely still like walking the dog in my pajamas and mm-hmm. throwing caution to the wind. Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I feel like the biggest shift has just been people knowing my name and addressing mm-hmm. emails to Aubrey mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. feeling like uh, folks in my life are now going to be tuned in in a different way and at a different yeah. level yeah because you've always known <laughs> I guess sure. it's, yeah, sure. it's the change. yeah it's the change for people around you that's interesting you mentioned fears about you know safety and mm. I mean this is such a crappy topic I'm about to bring up but I don't know I've I've revisited your essay about trolling a lot because mm. I just feel like it's it's really important and it's it's been such a part of your life as a writer I know I've experienced it you know, and I put out cookbooks, right? Like I put out totally? like friendly content and I've been trolled. A lot of people I know have been trolled. One, I just want to kind of name that because I think it's so prevalent and it's horrifying. And I don't know how many people know how prevalent that is and how many people navigate that. And you've navigated a lot of it for you right now, having put out a book rather than all of your content being primarily on the internet. How has that been going for you lately? Do you feel more safety in putting out a book than kind of like posts or just how is that department of your life right now? It's both like better and worse. (laughs) So (laughs) the ways in which it's better are like, look, man, if you write a book, 
somebody's got to pay 26 bucks to read your book or wait for it to be available as a hold from the library. And then they've got to invest, you know, Mm -hmm. at least six hours of time to read it, probably more, right? Mm -hmm. And that's just generally like a bridge too far for a lot of trolls, right? Like that's some investment to like hate read a book. It's not a thing I've done. I will watch some shows to make fun of them, but like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm yeah. not above it, Yeah. but it's just like to do that with a book is like such a level of investment Yeah. that a lot of folks don't make. The flip side of that is there's a lot of press, mm-hmm. um, which means a lot of sort of like broader audiences. And that brings a wave of sort of two things. One is a small but determined group of like really virulent trolls will just go hard mm-hmm. <laughs> for like days at a time. Mm-hmm. And it also brings a bunch of people who will sort of write in and say, I've never heard anybody talk about this this way. And then here's, you know, five to 10 pages of like all of the stuff that my mom projected onto me as a kid about weight. Or here are all the ways, you know, when my dad put a padlock on the refrigerator so we couldn't eat because he thought we were getting too fat. Mm -hmm. Or, right, like just these intense sort of body-based traumas. So it's both like people sort of tend to take books in in a more considered way, right? Mm -hmm. Than a podcast or than a column that they read online. But the flip side is like, it's also a wider audience, which is both like great and also bring some hard stuff with it. Yeah, I just like writer to writer or just human being Mm -hmm. to human being. I am just, I'm just so sorry that this has been such a consistent part of your professional life because it sucks. It really sucks. It totally does. And like back at you, bud. I just feel like so much of this is just like, are you anything other than a white man on the internet? Then welcome. Mm -hmm. You'll know this story. Mm -hmm. Like you're Mm -hmm. familiar. Of course, I wish that you could say as a fat person, you could go on the internet and say, hey, when you do this thing, it makes me feel sad. Would you consider doing something else? And Mm -hmm. have people say anything other than like, Mm -hmm. you're gonna die. Mm -hmm. Or whatever the sort of like overblown responses, but also like, I come out of like community organizing and we would like close our office for bomb threats and stuff like that. So I'm just sort of like, listen, if anybody's uh, in a position to take it, I'm in a pretty good position to take it, you know? Well, I was going to ask you about that post that I referenced that I I have gone back to because it's, it's felt very supportive to me as I've navigated trolling, you know, at the, at the bottom of that post, it's, it feels the same to me at the end of your book. There is like a list of things we can all do to Mm -hmm. alleviate this painful thing that you have gone through. And I was thinking about your work, how you take these like personal, often painful experiences you've had. And then you turn around and you give like specific, proactive, like logical advice about how to like shift these things that have hurt you. Right. And Uh. I'm wondering within that, like, I know for me, reading your work has been part of my support system. (laughs) Like what is your support system in doing this? And like, what is your, this is a weird question, but like, what's your processing process? Like, how do you get to the point where you're able to like shift that? Yeah, that's a good question. So some of the essays are about recent things that have happened in my life. A lot of them are about things that happened in my twenties or early thirties or whatever. You know what I mean? So like, I think it's worth like, I do get notes from people sometimes being like, how rough can one person have it? And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's like 30 years worth of stuff. It's cool. Yeah. We're good. Don't worry about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think part of it is time, mm-hmm. right? Part of it is just time. A big part of it is like therapy, straight mm-hmm. up paying a therapist. Yeah. Oh, best money I spend every <laughs> week. Therapy. Thumbs up. <laughs> and I would say part of it is also like building a crew of friends over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years who are folks who won't undercut or discount experiences that differ from their own Mm. feels like really essential to that Mm -hmm. on this for like around fat stuff and just around like everything, right? Like none of us have been through everything there is to go through in the world. (laughs) And still most of us are prone to sort of like, question someone else's experience or wonder if it was as bad as they thought it was or mm-hmm. wonder what they did to contribute to it or that kind of thing. So I would say those are the the biggest parts. I'm curious about for you, like, first of all, like, what in the earthly hell are people doing trolling a cookbook author? <laughs> Step one, like, those pie crust cookies were <laughs> terrible. Like, what? <laughs> what are they going off on you about, first of all? And second of all, 
and also like I know you do like a bunch of equity work and a bunch of other you know what I mean like stuff that tends to draw that stuff in so yeah, yeah I don't want to minimize at yeah. all <laughs> I'm just sort of no it was the pie crust no I'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> I wish yeah no it's They're more like, about those needed cardamom yeah like, okay yeah <laughs> mm. yeah no it's it's not it's not about the food yeah, yeah. it's Never yeah, the food, right? Yeah, exactly. With anything, right? But um, so yeah, I mean, we don't have to go on and on about trolling, but I just that essay has been very impactful for me. And I yeah, I was just curious about like the difference with the book and just yeah. how this part of your work that is so much about educating, I feel like people who have just done so much harm. And I just feel like that's really generous on your part. And is that do you feel like a sense of I guess, like responsibility or is it just like your deep desire for the world to be just less crappy or like, I don't know what, what kind of is behind that? Is it your community <laughs> organizing background or? I think organizing has a lot to do with it. Right? Yeah. So I did a ton of like, I'm a queer lady. I did a bunch of LGBT rights organizing over the course of about 10 years. And there was a ton of research that we did at that time at the start of my organizing career we were doing all this stuff around like marriage and domestic partnerships and civil unions it was like that era which now mm-hmm. feels like a hundred years yeah. ago and yeah. it was like five years yeah. ago <laughs> like yeah. cool what we found was that we had gone so hard on like LGBT people lose out on 1138 rights and responsibilities or whatever the number was right that when we went back to poll straight people on like, why do they think, like, why do they get married? They were like, for love and commitment. And when we said, why do gay people want to get married? They were like, for rights and responsibilities and for tax breaks. And we were like, Mm -hmm. oh, (laughs) you don't think we fall in love? Uh Uh-oh. Like, (laughs) that's not good. Um, And that research and sort of like a bunch of the work that we did there sort of led me into this whole world of social change research Mm -hmm. that just shows that like the thing that changes people isn't facts and figures, right? It's the thing we all know intuitively, right? It isn't sort of facts and figures. It isn't the best argument. Like none of us are policymakers for the most part, right? Like we're not sort of like weighing arguments for things. We're mostly listening to people's stories and we're mostly sort of shifted by folks' personal experiences. And it felt like a lot of our conversations about fatness and fat people were happening in the absence of those stories, mm-hmm. unless it was a fat person who became thin, right? Yeah. Who then becomes sort of a success story sure. to prop up sort of this myth that it is possible for any fat person if they try hard enough to lose weight. Um, and what we know from the research there is that like 95 to 98% of weight loss attempts fail, So that's just like not true, but we keep hearing from that three to 5%. And Mm -hmm. it felt like somebody should start writing more. There are Mm -hmm. definitely like existing, plenty of existing books by fat folks. Um, But it felt like there was room for more of that sort of like personal story and actual personal, emotional and social experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Stuff. Because that felt like it was so still sort of underplayed. Absolutely. Now I appreciate so much and so much of your work, you're always talking about or writing about like how much is said about fat people without actually talking to them. And Mm. just that simple act of like giving agency to people to tell their own stories and, you know, for you to tell your own, it's really powerful. And I feel like we hear about that a lot within other marginalized groups and stuff, like whether it's the queer community or black people in this country or Mm. people of color, but I don't think people realize how much fat people are talked about without actually being spoken to or, or just heard. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) Totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. There's this saying in organizing that's nothing about us without us. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like you just don't build a policy around a community without their participation. And the fact of the matter is like almost everything that happens about fatness and fat people happens in the absence of fat people. Yeah. And without any sort of participation and guidance, and even when fat folks sort of assert themselves in those processes, we're not considered credible because mm-hmm. look at our bodies. We've mm-hmm. already failed. How could we possibly you be the experts? Cannot right? be trusted. Yeah. Can't be that. trusted. Yeah. No, yeah. look at you. Just look yeah. at her. It's not going to yeah. work, right? <laughs> so it, it feels like a big, feels like a big mountain to climb mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to get there for sure. But also like, feels really important. Yeah, totally. <laughs> feels really important. Totally. <laughs> 
While we often hear about the newest this or that, I'm always much more interested to hear about things that have managed to stick around for a long time. OXO has been making trustworthy, dependable tools for 30 years. 30 years! And I think one of the keys to their longevity is that they invite feedback. If you're not satisfied with an OXO product, they want to hear about it. They'll replace it or refund your purchase if needed. But most importantly, they'll listen to you and learn from your experience. I really admire this approach, and it inspires me. For more about OXO and their story and everything they make, head to OXO.com. That's O-X-O dot com. I'm wondering specifically about that one line I did write down mm. um, outside of the book, just because I feel like it's important to write down, is the marginalization and public abuse of very fat people is so commonplace that it's become accepted, but that doesn't make it acceptable. This comes at the end of your book, and that proceeds where you lay out all these various ways to combat this, including this part about standing up for fat kids, which mm-hmm. is vital. And this is like the subject of your op-ed. I mean, I understand, you know, writing a New York Times op-ed, it's not like you have so much choice in the, in the world, and, you know, it's not like something everyone gets to do or whatever. So, like, I get all that. But I'm wondering how you singled out, because you outlined so many different things in that section, and uh-huh. that important part about standing up for fat kids. Like, how did you single that out as, like, this is going to be this part that I'm going to highlight in this newspaper. I had a fantastic editor at the Times, Janae Desmond Harris, wonderful. And I pitched her a few different ideas that Mm -hmm. felt like things that were sort of enough part of the news cycle that they would make sense on an op-ed page, right? And things that would sort of be a pretty fundamental reframe of folks' understandings. I pitched her that piece, I pitched her a piece about sort of like medical bias. Mm-hmm. And I pitched her a piece about like flying on planes, mm-hmm. which I pitched to her with the caveat of like, no one's flying on a plane right now. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, maybe not <laughs> this one. Part. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it seemed like sort of the best fit for the times mm-hmm. was this childhood obesity epidemic sort of reframe. Mm-hmm. And it really seems to have caught on with readers. I mean, I checked the letters to the editor a couple of days later and they were 100% of the letters that I saw were in response to that piece. And I was like, whoa, okay, yeah, touched yeah, a nerve, yeah, team. Totally. Touched a nerve. Totally. Off the top of your head, like, what are, I don't know, two ways we can stand up for fat kids? What does that look like? Yeah. So I think there are like individual levels, mm-hmm. right? And then there are sort of systemic levels. I would say if you are an adult in the life of a fat kid, I think being there for them to talk them through sort of their experiences of bias or bullying or Mm -hmm. whatever and reassuring them that their body doesn't need to change because Mm -hmm. someone else was mean to them. Anytime someone's mean to you, that's generally on that person. Yeah, (laughs) Like this is one of those times when we sort of fall back onto this sort of weird, outdated cultural script that like, actually the target of bullying is to blame for the bullying, right? Yeah. Um, Being fat is the number one cause of bullying in American schools. So this is like not a small problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And often the solution that is posed is either sort of like, well, toughen up because it's going to be what it's going to be. Or Mm -hmm. if you don't like it, just lose weight, Mm -hmm. which is um, amongst adults, dieting and weight loss is a huge gateway to eating disorders. Amongst kids, it's like, as close as you get to a guarantee. You know what I mean? Like it is really sort of inviting a whole future of sort of engagement with dieting and eating disorders and all that kind of stuff. On a systemic level, I would say there's starting to be some interest in looking at sort of revisiting the policy around BMI report cards. Mm -hmm. So some folks are not, uh, may not be aware that I think it's around 30 states uh, somewhere around there. I need to double check my numbers, but you know, well over half of US states weigh kids in school Mm -hmm. and then send report cards home to their parents saying, this is your kid's BMI, better Mm -hmm. do something about it, which most parents don't actually even believe, (laughs) right? And schools don't actually have anything in place to support kids through the weight loss that Mm -hmm. they're recommending, right? And we don't have evidence-based practices to do that. So like- And the BMI is garbage. Oh, the BMI is like (laughs) super totally racist. So like, just like step one baseline, BMI, crash course, BMI, uh, based on the body measurements of Western European white men in the 1800s. 
has since been universalized to all people of all genders and races. And what little research exists on sort of the impacts of the BMI and how it plays out for Black folks, for Asian folks, for Latino folks, for Native folks, for just like anybody who's not white is like, it doesn't really seem to work. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem to translate in a yeah. meaningful way. And tells you and, like nothing about your health. Totally. And even amongst white people, it only about 50% of the time does it accurately predict obesity, right? Yeah. Like the rock, if you take his weight and divide it by his height, would be an obese person, according mm-hmm. to the BMI. I would argue the rock, not a fat guy going out on a limb. <laughs> the rock, not fat. <laughs> Hot takes. The rock isn't fat. <laughs> Thank you for breaking that down, though. It's so sure. So, sure, okay. sure. so systemic. The BMI report cards. I mean, I feel like those are the big things, right? Yeah, if you can support yeah. kids through their experiences of bullying and sort of like help them understand that folks may have outdated ideas, they may not think of themselves as responsible. They may, you know what I mean? Like sometimes people are just mean and you don't actually yeah. have to spend time with mean people yeah. if you want to. Turns yeah. out. Yeah. Right. Like instead, I think the conditioning that I will say I got as a fat kid and lots of people get as fat kids is just like toughen up and take it because they're mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah. They're right. You are too fat. You do need to change. Yeah. Yeah. Even though we don't know how to make that change happen. Again, like, I'm ugh. so sorry and wish it was something I was unable to relate to, but it is something I can relate to. And it's totally, just, again, it sucks. What would you like parents or friends or, you know, adults in the life of children who maybe aren't fat but who do the bullying uh, oh. and who are making fun of fat kids. Like what would you like an adult in their life to say to them? Oh, that's so tricky. It's tricky in part because it's uh, an experience that I haven't had. Mm. Right. Like mm-hmm. I actually haven't, I haven't been in that position before. And, and I suspect that that's partly because overwhelmingly, right. Like kids pick things up from places. Yeah. If there's negative body talk happening at home, it's more likely for that to sort of materialize Mm -hmm. at school, right? That doesn't mean that that's the sole source, but I would urge them to parent their kids in the way that they would if they were bullying a disabled kid Mm -hmm. or a kid on the basis of race or Mm -hmm. a kid on the basis of sexual orientation or gender Mm -hmm. identity, right? Too often there is this sort of breaking away and siloing off of fatness and fat kids as like, Bullying's bad, but those guys deserve it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is sort of the message. Yeah. Um, and I would just urge folks to sort of like bring it in line with the rest of their approaches to bullying because most kids don't do a whole lot of bullying. Yeah. And are pretty, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, and I think a lot of kids want to be good, nice, helpful, you know what I mean? Like good mm-hmm. friends, good community members, all yeah. of it. And I think the best thing that parents can do and just sort of like grown ups. I'm an aunt. Uh, and I love it. Um, and I would say, you know, the same thing to my niece and nephew, which is just like, you know, like bullying is never okay. You know, better yeah. than that. Yeah. You know how to be a kind person. Yeah. Is that kind? Was it, I, I used to work in a kindergarten classroom way back Wow. and our two questions were, is it safe? And is it kind? And mm. genuinely, I think about that all the time. As an oh, adult. I'm like writing that down. <laughs> <laughs> if it's not safe and it's not kind, why are you doing it? I love that. It really was helpful to me. Yeah. <laughs> Genuinely was helpful to me to That's repeat like that to five-year-olds all a day. a great framework. I wish that poster was hanging in a lot of offices, right? <laughs> like totally. people making big decisions. Is um, it safe and is it kind? Yeah. Done. You mentioned earlier your support system, like you've kind of developed this crew of people in your life who, who are understanding about different experiences, even if they haven't had them. They believe you. I'm wondering about how you found that group of people. And maybe this is a question of like, how does one make adult friends, which is difficult, (laughs) but sort of specifically as you identify yourself as your fat friend, right? Mm -hmm. Like friend is in the name there. You've been the fat friend to other people. And I'm just wondering how that friend makes friends who support her. Yeah. Ooh, I wish that I had good advice. (laughs) (laughs) on this front basically like i spent a long time organizing which just brings you into contact with a ton of people like Mm -hmm. your job is to be a tractor beam of people Mm -hmm. and sort of get them to build the movement that you're working on right such a good description yeah (laughs) (laughs) it feels very like dr Who-y or something (laughs) like yeah so i just came into contact with a ton a ton a ton Mm -hmm. of people 
who I really, really liked. And as I started to sort of like be more open about not even my politics as a fat person, but just like my experiences as a fat person, mm-hmm. that group sort of self-selected mm-hmm. a little bit. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I had a good big pool of people who I genuinely liked. And then mm-hmm. there were folks who just didn't, couldn't get there Yeah, on yeah. fat stuff. And I don't dislike them and I don't begrudge them that, but I was also like, oh, you're not the person that I can rely on when this stuff happens, which means, you know, there's just like some stuff that I have to sort of leave out of the conversation with those folks and that, like anytime that happens with good friends, they're never like your closest friend. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. um, That's, that's all I got. No, it was, yeah, (laughs) it's a, yeah, it's totally a tricky thing. I did a um, thing on Instagram a couple years ago because so many folks had asked me this question that was just like a discussion thread on Instagram. And we just called it, let's make fat friends where people <laughs> would just put their city mm-hmm. and then people would respond and be like, I'm in that city. And then people mm-hmm. organized meetups. It was like mm-hmm. really, truly lovely post pandemic yeah. to return to. Totally. No, yeah. that's awesome. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of, I did a episode, I don't know what number or whatever it is, but a while ago with a friend of mine, Liz Alpern, who started this thing, Queer Soup Night. I don't know if you're familiar with it. You know, I love first, this. Yeah, no, I don't, but I love it already. It's awesome. It like started pretty soon after the 2016 election. Liz is in Brooklyn and she started it there, but now there's chapters all over the country. And it started off as this, like, we're going to make a big pot of soup and invite primarily queer people and we're going to like raise money for a local organization and that's kind of it (laughs) it's like this gathering for queer people that's not based around like alcohol or like you know dancing or like things that not everyone loves to do yeah Um, and it's just it's just awesome and they've raised so much money for different groups but really the most important thing I think is they've brought a group of people together in a wooded in a safe and kind way right (laughs) totally (laughs) it is safe and it is kind and I just I love how simple that idea is and just having attended queer soup night events as a queer person, that feeling of being in a room where you are not an exception. And it is just what a great feeling. Yeah. It's powerful to like be with other people who you share that experience with of like how you navigate your day-to-day life and just walk through this world. And yeah, absolutely. And also like, you know, there's also something physical about being in a room full of fat people. Mm -hmm. Right a couple of things happen. One is like when you're able to physically be together, which of course, like that's not really happening right Mm -hmm. now. When a fat person has organized an event for other fat people, you know that all the furniture will fit and Mm -hmm. will not leave you with sort of bruises in your Mm -hmm. thighs from arms on chairs. Mm -hmm. You know that it will hold, the furniture will hold you and it will be comfortable, but also, so like there's like physical accessibility, right? Yeah. Part of it. But also there's this thing that happens where like when fat people, when I as a fat person, will say this, when I as a fat person go into a public space, I do so with like almost hugging myself mm. to make myself as small as possible. Mm-hmm. I usually have my arms crossed. Uh, I usually have my legs crossed and I'm trying to sort of scrunch myself in mm-hmm. as much as possible to not take up space. And there's this thing that happens in a room full of fat people where people just actually like let their arms down and like actually just physically relax in a public space in a way that is really super rare. Yeah. At least again, at least for me. Yeah. Um, It's it's really, really wonderful. In the same way that like queer soup, Nate, right? Like Mm -hmm. even if you felt like you couldn't be out at work or something, Mm -hmm. that's a space where you could be out and you wouldn't have to worry about like sort of redacting your partner's pronouns name or anything. You know what I mean? Like it's just a nice space to be able to just sort of like, let out, let out a sigh of relief. Absolutely. That's really, really powerful. (laughs) I have nothing more to say than that. It is. We have talked about so many of the things that are so challenging about what Mm. you do and what you stand for and write about and share and how you navigate those challenges. And I'm just wondering, just off the top of your head, like what is the most rewarding part of your work? Mm. Oh, there are so many good things. I feel like I have gained so many more like my existing friend group of sort of organizers are mostly not fat people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel like I've gained so many fat friends Mm. through this process, which Mm -hmm. is just a fundamentally different way of relating, right? Mm -hmm. That you can just sort of go, oh my God, I have to get on a plane this week. 
And the fat person you're talking to will go, are you okay? What do you need? Do you have a seatbelt extender? Do you have a blah, blah, blah? Do you have this? You don't have have to explain. Yeah. You don't have to explain it. And you also don't have to like, often within people, that conversation ends with like, well, I assume you're buying a second seat Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. like sort of like not only like explaining what your experience is going to be, but also sort of like justifying the space that you take. Like it's like that person starts getting like pre-irritated with you for being a fat person on a plane that they're not going to be on. It's yeah. really odd. Yeah. Like, so there's something Ugh. really, really wonderful about the like fat relationships mm-hmm. um, that have come from all of this. I think seeing people at those like friend making meetups and mm-hmm. knowing that like, that was like two years ago, people are still doing it. It's so wonderful. Yeah. That's awesome. And I think like getting to know people like uh, Michael Hobbs, my podcast mm-hmm. co-host mm-hmm. and like getting to meet you. I don't know. Oh, like, please. it just feels yeah. like, no, I'm serious. <laughs> like, it just feels like I get to keep knowing and yeah. coming into contact with like really interesting, thoughtful people yeah. who are interested in centering compassion in mm. their work, mm. whatever that looks like and mm-hmm. however it needs to manifest and yeah. whatever it's for. That feels like a humongous win. Uh, there are times when it feels quite a bit more helpful to me than organizing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you interesting. Know? Do you consider what you do now to be a form of community organizing? I mean, it's literally bringing people together. Like it's <laughs> like, I don't know. It feels related. I don't think mm-hmm. it's the same thing, but it definitely feels like mm-hmm. related. And I don't think I would be writing this stuff in this way had I not. Yeah. You know. Had that. If you're enjoying this conversation, come join me on my virtual book tour for Simply Julia. I'm so excited to join friends and colleagues like Dory Greenspan, Ashley C. Ford, Nick Sharma, and Deb Perlman from Smitten Kitchen, along with people you might remember from episodes of Keep Calm and Cook On, like Patty Heenich, Gia Tolentino, and Anthony from Netflix's Queer Eye. These conversations will be happening live on platforms like Zoom with the support of independent bookstores across the country. Any and all are welcome and all of the information is available at juliatertian.com slash events. That's juliatertian.com slash events. The link is also in the show notes. Okay, back to today's conversation. I have one final question for you. I realize we have had this whole conversation about all of this work and we've had no conversation about food. Oh my God. Yes, let's talk about food. Um, but my one question, I just ask everyone who's, you know, kind enough to come on the show. First thing yeah. that comes to mind, yeah, what was your it. favorite thing to eat when you were growing up? Little salmon. Aubrey. Salmon. Salmon. Salmon, salmon. Oh, you knew that immediately. Oh yeah. Salmon. <laughs> All the way. Salmon. I grew up and still live in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Like I've gone away and come back a couple of times and man, oh man, wild salmon from the Pacific Northwest, just second to none. Wow. Yeah. We would have that. And like on like a, this is like fancy dinner. Night, uh-huh. right? <laughs> salmon, right. That's not an everyday salmon and like asparagus. I wow. Just, like, just mow through it the best prepared how oh uh just like super hot pan yeah stove top yeah you know and my mom would always put a tiny bit of like she'd do a ton of lemon juice and a little bit of liquid smoke weirdly oh Um, that was actually like kind of a nice touch yeah weirdly on salmon go figure i get it i'm like yeah sure sure why not out like barbecued yeah yeah whatever totally underappreciated super underappreciated, yeah. frankly. It's yeah. one of those, like, it feels like a little bit of a déclassé sort of ingredient, uh-huh. right? And also, I am, like, oh, such a proud, <laughs> such a proud owner of, I think, at least two bottles of liquid smoke That's somewhere so in our funny. house. Like, mm. I still don't completely understand what it is. But... I have no idea. <laughs> I've not looked at the label. At some point, we'll do, like, a maintenance phase episode on it or something, and I'll just be like, I'm ruining Please it for do. myself. <laughs> Like, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that was like really, really great growing up in ways that, so like when I moved away, I lived in Rhode Island for a little bit and I just sort of quietly expected that like Mexican food across the country was going to be mm. like the caliber of Mexican food that happens in like Oregon, California, mm-hmm. Arizona, Washington, you know yeah. what I mean? Like where there are like significant populations yeah. of like Mexican American folks. That is not the case. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. 
I lived on campus in college and there was a place right off of campus, no joke, called uh, that served Mexican food and bagels. <laughs> and it was called Bagel Gourmet Olay. Oh, like, oh no! <laughs> and at one point my mom came to visit and she was like, where can we go to eat? And I was like, oh, it's kind of slim pickings around <laughs> here. There's this, this and there's like... Bagel gourmet Olay. These oh are bagels gosh. and Mexican food. And she went, Oh, Aubrey, you're so provincial. It's called fusion. <laughs> Sick burn, mom. Amazing. <laughs> totally was delightful. It, was it like Mexican food on a bit? Like instead of a tortilla, you have a bagel for a taco? Or they were just like, they serve both? It was just like, here's the bagel side of the menu. Got here's it. the Mexican okay. food okay. side got of it, the got menu. Got it, got it, got it. Totally. It was, it was rough going. But near a, near a college campus or something? Yeah, it was like right off of get our, it. Yeah, totally. Like, it's yeah. like 100% like, look, we know you're smoking weed. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Come here, here and get you go. your enchilada bagel or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. The bagels were great. The Mexican food. Yeah. Not so much. Hard to do both those things well. 100%. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's for all maybe. we have in Mexican food, we fully lack in bagels. The bagel <laughs> situation out here is a disaster. Yeah. Very disappointing. I don't know which one of those. I mean, I grew up in New York and my connection with bagels feels very much my DNA. So I think if I had to choose, but I don't really want to choose, I guess I don't have to. Yeah, you totally don't yeah, have to. Yeah, yeah, so. I was like 17, I think, the first time I had a New York bagel. And mm. my it blew my brains out of my head. <laughs> like... <laughs> I was just used to like grocery store, like bread uh-huh. in a circle and call yeah. that a bagel, right? Yeah. Which is like fundamentally, yeah. absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, it's it's yeah. fine. It's just different. I mean, it's bread. Yeah. It's just like a piece of bread <laughs> that they put in a circle. It's fine. Bread yeah. is great. It is for sure not the same thing as no. like a real genuine bagel, which is like magical. Yeah. Hot Ugh. out of, yeah. Totally. Oh, forget it. Totally. Nothing better. What kind of bagel is your order? If you're getting, oh. Like if you're in New York and we're going to Murray's or wherever or Russ and Daughters or I'm uh, not going to pick a place. They're all great. Sure. Totally. Like, tr- and truly like every bagel place in New York is better than any bagel place in Portland, Oregon. So just like, you don't have to, you know what I mean? Like there's just like, no, it's just, there's no contest at truly any bagel place in New York. I would go everything bagel schmear locks red onions capers sliced tomato if they, i mean like you gotta go all yeah, in right yeah yeah you gotta do the whole thing you just described my order i knew yes. i knew i liked you i knew i was a fan i knew i appreciated work, you <laughs> now i feel like okay it's well, for this real then is the post-pandemic plan we'll find a place that Done. serves both bagels and drinks <laughs> <laughs> bagels great. and whiskey classic <laughs> <laughs> amazing and like Amazing. hang out and shoot the show. Yeah, that Should sounds great. great. Um, <laughs> I, I just let let's actually do that, and I look forward to it. And in the meantime, I will just keep telling everyone I know about you and your work because I just think it's so important, and it is I think it's life changing, and it's I just I feel like it's essential reading and. Thank you for doing it. It's it's major. So oh man, yeah. thank you so much for reading it and for reaching out. I and the podcast mentioned... is like the best. It's the oh, best. thank it's you. So yes. Thank you. Thank all, you. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fun. I will say what I told you before we started recording is like I have been such a longtime fan of yours and own I think every cookbook you've read. Like maybe maybe everyone definitely more than half. Wow. Um, and I'm like just a super super fan. And that feels like a thing that you don't get to talk about a lot as a fat person is like loving to cook. Mm. <laughs> right? um, there's always some sort of like shadow over yeah. it. Right? It feels sort of sinister coming to it from a fat person. But man, oh man, I love to cook. And boy, do I love your cookbooks. Oh. They make me so happy. Well, thank you. And I hadn't really thought about that. And I appreciate you sharing that about fat people not getting to talk about how much they love to cook. And oh my God. I am so grateful that, you know, you've enjoyed my books, but not about like my cookbooks, just that kind of alone, like I've, I've talked to a lot of fat people about like things about, you know, enjoying eating, but having yeah. a hard time like eating in public and stuff yeah. and like what that brings. And I just, I never, I mean, I might just be totally like naive, but I just never thought about for very fat people to talk about their love of cooking, like how stigmatized that must be. And totally. wow, 
sorry, and also, watching me like learn something <laughs> for the first time. Well, and you know, like I'll say I've taken a couple of like cooking classes. Like I'll do like I did like a knife skills class that was mm-hmm. like great. Mm-hmm. I don't know shit about how to hold a knife. It's perfect. <laughs> And the responses that I would get in those classes, not from instructors, but from other attendees was like, good for you for learning to cook. And I'm like, mm. oh, oh, they think I'm this way because I don't know how to, they're just imagining yeah. me ordering $20 at McDonald's for every yeah. meal, right? Mm-hmm. And like, there's sort of all this stuff about like, when you talk about cooking, you can just see people sort of imagining these like Paul Prudhomme or... Mm-hmm or Paula Dean style mm-hmm. recipes, right? Yeah. They're just like throw in a couple sticks of butter, right? Like they're yeah. just sort of envisioning this like bizarre thing. And I will say the single most sort of healing thing for me has just been able, like being able to like lean into the joy of exploring food mm-hmm. and like cooking different things and trying mm-hmm. shit out. You know what I mean? Like, yeah going hard on a bunch of stuff. It feels like such like such a wonderful thing. And I wish more fat people felt like they had more yeah. access to that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. Totally. My whole life is about home cooking. Like it's yeah. what I've done forever. It's what I, you know, it is what I both preach and practice. And, you know, I've only known it from my perspective, right? Which is someone who's maybe not always been super happy with my body, who has been, you know, bullied when I was a kid, but who has never gone through the world as like a very fat person. Like I've never had someone question my love of cooking because of my body. That is not something I've experienced. I just really appreciate you like making me aware of that and maybe Mm -hmm. some other people too. And I just, I don't know. I just feel like it's worth saying like everyone deserves to love to cook if they want to, <laughs> like, totally. you know, like, and I understand it's not for everyone and not everyone wants to, but like, no matter what body you're in, like, that's not something you should be kept from. Like totally. And I just feel like, listen, if I were talking about something else, I genuinely feel like the thing that I might be yelling about is like, everybody go join a CSA. <laughs> <laughs> weird where I'm just like no look sometimes you definitely get a box full of rutabagas but then you got to figure out rutabagas like Like it I sort of like had this little like iron chef period for myself where I was just like just figure it out yeah just here's a box of stuff just figure it out yeah Yeah. Uh, and it was such a joy and a challenge and like totally agreed that like cooking should be like this sort of unfettered expression of like love and joy Mm -hmm. and I genuinely feel like our conversations about weight loss and our biases against fat people and against becoming fat ourselves, all of that kind of stuff is just such a wet blanket Mm -hmm. on obscures that sort of like love and joy that totally can and should come with cooking. Totally. I don't know, man. Yeah, totally. No, I'm so happy we're talking about this because I just feel like cooking and eating both of those mm. things, obviously they have a lot to do with each other. Like they are yeah. both oppor- like separately and together, they are both opportunities to experience pleasure around food, which is important. <laughs> and like, yeah. and something that for those of us lucky enough to have the time and resources to do both of those things as often as we would like to do, like to cook and eat, like we have the opportunity to have pleasure every day. That's amazing. I don't know. I just kind of feel like I want to apologize because I feel like, oh. I went into this whole conversation that was like so serious and like at (laughs) at times even, you know, kind of talking about these challenging sort of negative things you've experienced or navigate and stuff. And I just feel like I would, like, it makes me think of like, there's so many movies about lesbians where someone dies at the end or like someone, you know, something terrible or traumatic happens. And like, you don't often get to see two women just like have a great time or like, you know, like, and I feel like so often the conversation about fat people and, and the conversations with fat people, which are even fewer are about Mm -hmm. like negative things. And it's like, no, you can like, have a conversation that's also about pleasure, about food. <laughs> like, totally. That's possible. Yeah. Totally, totally. So, all of that yeah. is possible. And you don't have to hold all of that. In one podcast <laughs> also, I wrote a book about the hard stuff. Yeah. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. 
that's yeah. that's me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So yeah, no, but it is like totally like I think about that often with like TV shows like This Is Us, mm-hmm. right? Which is just like one long struggle <laughs> for yeah. one lady who sort of like looks like me, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, where I'm like, listen, I understand the like educational value of people who have not been fat seeing a fat person sort of in anguish over Mm -hmm. asking for a seatbelt extender on a plane, Mm -hmm. like totally get the educational value of that. I'm going to be over here doing something else. I feel similarly about the little wave of conversion therapy, like Mm -hmm. ex-gay therapy movies we got a couple years ago where I was like, these are for straight people. Yeah. No, thanks. I know. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to take a pass. Um, But like, yes, totally. There's like, there should be room for fat joy too. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. would be great. Yeah. That would be great in the world. Totally. Yeah. What, how do you feel when you're cooking? Oh man. So cooking is like fully my de-stress mm-hmm. thing. It's like my decompress, whatever, um, shake it off kind of thing. I feel I'm generally like a pretty anxious person and mm-hmm. I feel really focused and calm mm-hmm. when I cook. I have again, like been doing writing and organizing, which are two fundamentally pretty unsatisfying things to do. <laughs> versus cooking or baking where mm-hmm. you can be like i made a pie and there's the pie mm-hmm. it's done yeah. i did yeah. it right? it's over like, yeah there's a, there's a finished thing and it's also really relaxing to focus on like okay i did it this way this last time but how might i do it next time mm-hmm. right like totally. it's just really really fun and creative yeah in a low stakes kind of way yeah totally and it's great and if it doesn't turn out it's like okay it was a pie whatever <laughs> totally yeah, totally like as yeah. long as you have enough resources to get more groceries and make something else yeah. <laughs> you're good to go yeah that's totally. great I'm really I'm just extra excited to share my 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 book with you because there's the new one because I wrote a lot of essays in the book which I haven't done in oh interesting before. and one is like about my just trying to get through diet culture, which like might resonate. And also like I wrote a healthy cookbook that also isn't about losing weight. Is that and and, like what is healthy? But anyway, there's an essay about cooking and anxiety and like how it's been just like the most effective tool for me, in addition to like therapy and sometimes medication. (laughs) Like those things are helpful too. But yeah, I feel like knowing that we have the same bagel order, I just feel like this one is gonna like really resonate. So I'm excited to share it with you. And I just think a good reminder of like the more we talk about all the things that you and I are talking about, that you talk about in your work, you know, that I try and talk about in my work, I know how much connection I feel to you and we don't know each other really, right? Like, totally, yeah, you know, yeah. And that's but powerful. Also, like, it feels like we do. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm like, we don't, but also, yeah. this is our first conversation, but also I'm like, no, we're going to hang out. It's yeah. going to be good. <laughs> I, I'm excited for that. Yeah, me too. I just thank you. This is just so great. I'm excited to share this. I'm excited to share your just work. And I just, again, I just thank you. I feel so much gratitude for you. So thank you. Back at you, bud. What a treat. Thanks again to OXO for supporting Keep Calm and Cook On. Head to OXO.com. That's OXO.com for more. Thanks for listening to this episode of Keep Calm and Cook On. Head to juliatertian.com for more about the show and for all of the information about my new cookbook, Simply Julia. A pre-ordered copy is a gift to your future self. Please consider ordering one today from your favorite bookseller. If you'd like a signed copy, head to juliatertian.com slash simplyjulia and check out the information about personalized copies from Oblong Books, one of my favorite booksellers. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, take care.